the one thing I learned is the harder they were on you, the more they actually like it. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, skid steer operators of all ages, welcome to another episode of the Skid Steer Nation podcast. As always, I am your host, Ryan Deemer. In addition to being the host of this wonderful podcast, we also own skidsteernation.com. It is your home for high-quality American-made attachments. We have quite a catalog of attachments that range from buckets, telescoping booms, graders, stump grinders, augers. If you're looking for high-quality attachments to help you improve your business, your efficiencies, make a better return on investment, head over to skidsteernation.com and see the attachments we have available. Well, this week on the show, guys, we've got a gentleman from out in Monroe, Connecticut. He grew up in the excavation industry. He was telling me briefly about some stories with his grandpa when he was a child. Um, I can't wait to hear more about those. I think we're all going to get a good laugh out of some of those. Um, He went out on his own in 2020. His name of his company is County Construction. So without further ado, let's welcome Rich Oxendorf. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. How are you doing today, Rich? Not too bad, you know. Lovely day out here. How are you? Yeah. So Monroe, Connecticut, um, close to Hartford? Not really. About an hour out of Hartford. We're uh, we're right next to Newtown. Newtown? Uh, Sandy, like Sandy Hook area. Okay. Um, Bridgeport. Bridgeport. Right I think that's probably the town people might be able to recognize. Yeah, Bridgeport or Newtown, usually. Yeah, you're, you're in one of those states, though. Like People are like, where's that at? Like <laughs> Everything. Everybody's like, "Where are you? Are you near Hartford?" I'm like, "Yeah, ish. I'm closer to New York City than I am Hartford." You go to you go to Montana, and you're like, "Shit, hour away." Like you're in the city. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, man. So, uh, yeah, you grew up in this industry. Your grandfather started the business in the '70s. Your father worked in it. You've been around it since probably. I'm assuming you were in diapers. Yeah, if not earlier. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> gotcha. And um, so you, you've you done nothing else in your life other than either work in the family business or work for yourself in the in the excavation. Um, I did a couple stints, short stints. I, I could never really work for somebody else for more than six to seven months, but it was always an excavation. I, I just I'd get to a job site and I always felt not right because I couldn't run the job site. So for me, it was just a huge culture shock going from running job sites at 18, 19, to then being told what to do by the boss's son, who's now 17. Yeah. So, so looking back at those experiences where you work for other people, can you go look back now and say, wow, there's a part of me that's glad I did that because I learned something, even though I hated it in the moment? Oh, 100%. Like one guy I worked for, I left, I, I went to work for him, left, came back for a reason, you know, treated us real well. Showed me what I could get done with by being the boss. And he just, the guys that I worked with, you know, a couple of the older guys in their late 60s, they just taught me different ways than what I was used to from my grandfather and my father. So they just taught me different ways to skin the same cat. And it's definitely been helpful when I went on my own, having three or four different guys experience in my book. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I know you mentioned like we we have you guys fill out a few questions. So we get a little information on you so we can have some topics. But like you mentioned, go be the gopher for somebody else. Go learn the material costs. Learn how far away the supply house is, the parts of town. Those are things that a lot of guys don't think about when they start a business. And I thought it was really good advice. Honestly, that was my job title when I started working for my dad, once I got my license at 16, he called me out of school. I need this. I need that. So I'd be running from supply house to supply house. I'd be leaving, you know, my fourth, my fourth period, um, social studies class to go pick up wheelbarrows and hand tools. And sometimes I even went and got the under CDL trucks and went, picked up asphalt for the guys. So like I had to learn how long it takes me to get from you know, Norwalk to Darien and Darien back to Stanford and Stanford to here and how long it would take me to get from Bridgeport to Darien. So I learned all of that in two or three years worth of being the gopher, you know? Yeah. Or, or even the go get the coffee. You start to learn the little back roads of the area you're in. So now, oh, the main road is all backed up. Ah, you know, there's a little deli down here. Ah, oh, I know where I am. You start running around and 
now you're shaving 15, 20 minutes off a run when you're driving or to get to a job. And that was honestly probably one of the best things that I was taught. Yeah. I think there's a lot of value in that. Like I, I hear a lot of people out there. I've even had a few people ask if they could shadow another company and work for free because the knowledge was more valuable than whatever the hourly rate was going to be. Yeah. I mean, I got lucky with my father owning the business so that I got all of this before I stepped into the workforce. So by the time I graduated high school and got to being on the job sites, I already knew where all the supply yards were. I already knew where the spot where the asphalt is, the the stone, you know, pipe. I already knew how to get every piece of material that we needed and who closed when and what time and how long it would take me to get from here to there. So I knew exactly when I could leave job sites, you know, how long I had to stay instead of leaving at one o'clock on a job site, I could stay till two 30, which is just an extra hour and a half of, you know, getting shit done. Yeah. And and then I also realized you, you, to tie this all together, like all that knowledge you learn before you go out on your own. And like, one of the things you talked about was that you lost money on your first three jobs. So even though you knew where the stuff and you knew some of the material costs, like it's a whole different ball game when you got to go from beginning to end on your own and not have somebody else in the background. So walk me through that a little bit. So my father knew I was going to lose money. I ran, I ran the numbers by him, but he goes, you're so thick headed that I had to let you lose the money. It wasn't a substantial amount. I think one of the jobs was like three or four grand. I mean, it put me in a little bit of a hole to begin with, which is never fun, but it was a learning experience. You know, I learned, Oh, you know, I figured the job was going to take two days. Nope. I ended up having to rent another machine took me an extra two days. So that taught me, all right, so you think something's going to take two days? Bid on four. Yeah. And you know what? What I learned too is customers love rebates. So if you do a job in two days and you bid it on four and you hand them back $500, you're still up a day and a half on stay skid steer. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, absolutely. I mean, customers like anything that they get back, right? And, and, it, yeah. and it does it does two things, in my opinion. And maybe, maybe you can agree or disagree or add to this, but like one, it makes them happy. And then two, it really builds a lot of trust between you and them. And they are going to go out and talk about you and beat your drum. Whenever somebody brings up anything related to dirt work in their area. That's yep. And that's exactly what happened. I had multiple phone calls through um, past clients. The only problem was that they couldn't afford the work that they wanted done. Other than that, they were like, oh, you know, my friend so-and-so, they hired you. They absolutely loved it. They said that, you know, you got the job done earlier than expected, and you took a little bit of money off the bill. And granted, that $500 wasn't going to make or break me, but it built enough of a relationship to help me. Yeah. And then and we don't have to go down the rabbit hole of client acquisition costs, but like whenever you spend money on advertising or flyers or email, like all that stuff takes time and money. So whenever you acquire a new customer, it's not free. No. So that $500 is probably par for the course for what you would have spent in ads on Google. Yeah, finding something new, driving around. I have now 181,000 miles on my truck. At the beginning of last year, I had 150. And that was just from running for estimates. This truck doesn't do anything but go to estimates and go to the job site and back. So yeah. I'm a little bit less than a year. It was 30,000 miles just running around on estimates. Yeah, that's a lot. Do you pre-qualify your customers before you drive out for estimates? I do not. And I think that's something I should start doing because I have been running into a lot of window shoppers where they have me come out and I give them a price and then they hire somebody else that's cheaper for whatever reason that they may be. And it's just, yeah, we need to stop the window shoppers. Yeah. The pre-qualifying questions to me is probably one of the most important things any existing business can either review and modify and improve on or start doing. Because the reference I always make is that you and Elon Musk have the same amount of time in a day. Like no matter how much money you're worth, you all got 24 hours a day. The difference is, is he's maximizing his time to a different level and he's leveraging other people and he's cutting out unnecessary tasks on a daily basis. Yeah. One of the things I have been doing a lot lately is I have been getting just through guys that I, I worked for that have, you know, an engineering division of their company. I have been getting, you know, they, they've been giving me very large jobs to price out. So, you know, that's been, I would say, 70 percent of my running around lately. But the only problem is when you're small trying to break into those big jobs, you already got somebody that's already massive that's coming in at the same price that has a huge reputation behind them. 
Yeah. So, yeah. That so. is that is tough. And it's like one of the industries that I really recognize that in is like demolition. Like, yeah. Like, like where I live at, there's some massive demolition companies. And even with union laborers, they're less expensive than like a small single operator like yourself because they yep. have the, the the material processing area. They're reselling the materials so they can make money, like it, not just on the demolition. And they're able to get their costs done because getting the materials as important to them as getting the, the work. Yeah, that they own their own transfer stations. They own the containers. They own the trailers. I uh, actually just lost a large demo. I bid on it, and it was, I think my price was like one hundred forty-five thousand. And a company like what you're saying came in at a hundred thousand. But the problem is, is they took all the brick, concrete, and asphalt right to their shop, crushed it, resold it, and charged the customer to put it in. Yeah, I had to go rent the crusher, and renting a crusher up here is. 16,000 a week. So that's 16,000 profit gone right there off of my, my bid. Yep. Yeah. It, I mean, it's definitely certain industries and are, are really hard to crack into. And I always say, if you're not going to become like focused on that with hundred percent of your attention, sometimes it's just better to, I know that the money looks so good from the outside, but sometimes it's just better to say that's a distraction from what I really need to be doing for my business. Yeah. So I only offer demolition now to uh, builders. This way I come in, demo the house, strip the lot, stump it, you know, all the whole nine, prep it for build, and then do the site work. That's the service I offer versus going out to demo a 40,000 square foot, you know, yeah. uh, office or something like that. Because I'm going to get beat out on those. Yeah. And really what you're talking about doing for demo now, like demo is kind of like, hey, instead of having to find another contractor, I'll take care of that for you. Because you're doing all the dirt work, the site prep. Yep. So, so I knock just, a little bit off of one side or the other and make it up on the other side. <clears throat> yeah. And so then, we, hey, I can do, do the demo for 40 if you give me the site work. Oh, my other guy came in at 55. Well, you know, you take 15 off. I do all the site work and it's a one-stop shop. You don't have to call around. It's just me. Yeah. You minimize that friction for that guy and you just make life a lot easier. One point of contact. Yep. I think it's a smart method for you, like saying, know, know your place in the demolition role. Unless I go 100% demo, I'm never going to compete with those big guys. Those big guys. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, these guys have machines that can reach up 60, 70 feet. You know, they have the specialized cabs. They have everything. Yep. You can't compete with that. No. And like you said, with the time you add in your, all your rental costs and all that, you're either going to work for free to match their price or lose money. And then. It's not worth it on a job that size. No. Job that size, you could go 100 grand in the hole real quick. Yeah, that's just it. We're not talking about a few thousand dollars anymore. Like, you miss that oh. one by 5%. You're missing. Yeah. I don't mind missing a small, small $4,000 project by 5 or 10% because, okay, you know, my, it just makes my hourly rate go down versus yeah. being in the hole. Yeah. No, that's, that's, I think that's, that's fantastic. And so are you doing a lot of site prep and dirt work? Is that kind of your core, core service that you've been doing a lot of lately? Or is there something else that you kind of focus on? So my, my core service is site work, site prep, septic systems and drainage systems. So I have, my father has a friend who does systems. He doesn't want to be doing the work anymore. He just wants to get paid to sell the job. So I do septic tanks and new systems and that's been more of my bread and butter. I, you know, I landed this, I would say house, but it's more of a mansion. It's a 60 by 80 <laughs> and it's got a 10 foot basement ceiling. Wow. Yeah. It's a, uh, quite the large job. Yeah. And yeah. things like this is like, it keeps me busy, but the problem is I got one more week until I'm not here for three months. Why is that? Yeah. I got to wait for all the siding and roofing and for them to finish framing and do all that. Then I could come back to my roof leaders and my septic. So. These these kind of jobs aren't that the best to stay busy, but it's the smaller like a new septic or a new drainage system, those are the where I try to get to. Yeah. If I can. Are you doing more septic and drainage on like new site for construction or on existing homes? I am doing more replacement. So replacement. fixing old old systems, getting rid of them. You know, new tanks because the old tanks 35 years old, the fields are 40 years old, you know. Yeah. So I know every state's so different, but like, what's the, what's the regulations in, in your state, Connecticut, for being able to install or inspect septic systems? Do you have to go through any classes or? Yeah. So you have to be licensed. I think it's the P7. I'm not 100%. Um, 
because I still haven't gone for my license. I pull everything underneath my father's permit because my father has the permit. So I pull everything out under, well, he pulls the permit. So, and then I do the work and he's just there while I, uh, when I get the inspections and all that. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause like we, we've worked with guys in Oklahoma, man, and their DEQ department for septic systems, uh, they, they put a lot of friction in for excavating companies to become septic system companies. Like you better make it your focus. Cause not only you got to have all the testing and all that, but you've got to install five systems before they'll even give you a license underneath somebody else. That's like, I mean, it's. Yeah. That's it's the same. Crazy. Here. Yeah. It's, it's the same here. The problem is, is I don't have all of mine documented from when I was doing them, because like I said, I started putting in systems and stuff when I was still in my teens. Yeah. I was 13, 14 helping on the job site. And then I was doing six houses a year with my father you know, full new, new construction. So I was doing six septic systems a year and none of them are documented. So having, getting my write-offs is been the most difficult part for me. Yeah. But it sounds like you've got enough of an in for that industry. It's worth your time to keep moving forward with it. Oh, a hundred percent, hundred percent worth my time to do it. And if I can't get the permit to myself, like I said, my father's got a friend real close childhood friends, he'll pull the permit. And I just owe him a little bit of money on the top. Yeah. And that that kind of just makes me think like it's so important to have good relationships with a network. Not only yes. of like not only of potential customers or referral people like real estate agents, insurance companies, but with other excavation companies. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I definitely messed up. I think I should have kept a couple more relationships instead of burning the bridges, just because it probably would have helped me out a lot more when I get slow. But yeah. the guys that I do keep a relationship with, they, you know. I get something from them once a month, once or twice a month, you know, nothing major, but you know, it's a, a job I didn't have to go work for. It's something yeah. I didn't have to go looking for. I just got a phone call. Hey, can you do it for this price? I look at the plans. I'm like, yep. And you know, the job's mine. Yeah. And that's, that should be the goal of every excavation company owner out there is like leveraging other people's time to send work your way. Yeah. Especially since I'm a young guy, you know, I'm 29, no kids, no wife, no nothing. I have, abundance of time a lot of guys in this industry are in their mid 40s early 50s with wife kids they want to spend time with their kids so if you can leverage like hey you know i can do this job for you and you you know make 10 or 15 percent on it but you don't have to do anything it's something i've learned how to sell to to the older guys that want to spend time with their kids now they don't have to be on that job for 40 hours and they get yeah. to spend time with their kids instead yeah, I love that. Um, I think more more business owners should be doing that as like leveraging the network of other companies out there and finding other guys that have been in your path and been doing it for 20 or 30 years because there are certain jobs that they don't want to do because they don't like it. Yep. Or there's just jobs they don't want to do because they don't want the time commitment to it. Yeah, I've learned it's more the time commitment or they just think it's not big enough for them, but they're like, oh, I got it. And I'm just like, well, I'm slow. I'll take it if you don't want it. You know, take your percentage off the top and here's my number for it and add whatever you need for yourself. Yeah. And you know, they'll do it or sometimes the customer can't afford it, but you know, it, it's just something I didn't have to work. With. I didn't have to do anything to get that. Right. And it's something that's, that's the kid. Yeah. Like you don't have to drive out to do the estimate. You don't have to spend an hour yeah. doing that. You don't have to do follow up phone calls. Like no. there's, a, there's a lot it of value to that time. It saves me three hours of my day right there. Yep. And for ten percent, percent depending on the just size of the job, that ten percent might be less than the value of your three hours. Yeah. Um. Say you get a four thousand dollar job, you know, four hundred bucks. My hourly rate that I like to charge is a hundred fifty an hour. Mm -hmm. So that ten percent is worth the three hours of my time. All day. All day. All day. Yep. All day. One of the things you talk about is like because you've been doing this so long, and I'm sure you're adding a little buffer on your estimates for time frame is part of the reason why, but like you said, you're really good at finishing ahead of schedule. Yeah. I'm just wondering like how you've gotten to that level and like how you, how you track job by job in your head or on paper, like your hours and, and versus your, your actual hours versus your estimate hours. So I do it all in my head just because I know how long something should take. And for the longest time, it was literally just me my father and my grandfather doing full site work, full jobs, you know, houses, you know, mega mansions down here in Fairfield County. They're stupid. They're six, 6,000 square feet plus. They're massive. Like me and you will never live in one of these houses. They're cute. <laughs> and 
I, I don't know. I, I think it was just the way that I was brought up. Because every every time you move that excavator or every time you back that truck in, it's always got to be doing something. So if you're if you got the shovel in your hand and you're digging, you, you got to be moving. And when you're you know when you're running a machine, every movement is time. Every movement is time, and you can save five minutes here, five minutes there. Next thing you know, by the end of the week, you've saved three or four hours, or you could save yourself days just by setting up the job site properly. Yeah. So. And that's, can we talk about that a little bit? Like setting up the job site properly? Like give me an example and kind of walk me through how you would set so like, up. Okay. Perfect. So perfect example is this job site. It's on an acre. Um, house, like I said, is probably somewhere in the 8,000 square foot range. The footprint is just under 4,000 square feet and 2,100 yards of material came out of the hole. I dug, I rented a PC 290 to dig the foundation. And what I did is I dug the back wall and probably about a 10 foot wide section and threw all that material on the backside of the house or back. Row. And then the rest of the material I threw to the front where I could back in triaxles, no problem, get them loaded and get them out or spread the material in the front. So I had probably 400 yards in the back and 1600 rest and piled in the front. I only end up having to move 60 or 70 yards out of the back as excess. Versus having to split, you know, that pile of 2,000 yards and move out 1,000 yards from the back, bring it to the front, and then spread it in the front. Something yeah. like that with, you know, even so I, say you have like a 160 size excavator. That saves you two days of moving material. Yeah. And, then, and, um, and you're talking about minutes of like just stopping and assessing before you start putting your hands on minutes. the sticks. Five minutes, lay out the house roughly because... I don't dig the jog, jogs in the house. I dig a square hole or a rectangular hole. I don't put any of the jogs in and you think, oh, but you got so much extra material. Yeah, but that 20 minutes of messing around with the freaking corner and getting that right, you could have just dug out the extra 30 yards. And, yeah. and it's just things like that. And then, you know, okay, so like the topsoil too. I have two different topsoil piles on this job. One on the front that'll cover about the front of this house and then a pile in the back that's going to be all I would say 75% excess, but it's a straight shot. When you back a truck in around the garage, it's right there to load into a truck. And it's just, it's just simple things like that, that add up. Yeah. It kind of reminds me as a kid growing up, my dad would tell me, remember the six P's. Do you remember the six P's, Rich? I have no idea what those are. Proper planning prevents piss poor performance. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I've heard that one before. <laughs> yeah. So like my dad, like my, my dad would always like, he'd pound in the six P's and we'd always pound in the kiss method. Keep it simple, stupid. Yep. Like if, you, if you start thinking, overthinking things, you just got to tell yourself, keep it simple, stupid. Man, it's just dirt. It's just dirt. There's nothing, you know, I, I see it all the time. Like I'll drive by other jobs and I'll see it all the time. Guys got three or four different piles of fill. They got a pile of stumps in the front, a pile of stumps in the back. Take the extra 10 minutes. And put them in a little truck or whatever, or walk them to the front of the house, or walk them to where the dumpsters are going to go, and just pile them all there. And yeah. you know, it's stupid shit like that, man. That that guys are are losing hours over. Yeah, and I, and I think you we, we you probably I would categorize that into like the younger guy category because they're just so excited to get to work, and they yeah. just skip that five ten minute phase. I mean, you know, the older guys they've been around the block. It's they're in no yep. rush to finish their coffee. They've already got the plan in their head of how it's going to roll. And there's a value yep. in that. There's a value in that patience. Um, huge value in that. So we actually worked, this is going off of that, but a larger company with, they had six guys on their crew at the time, but we went through and implemented like a morning walkthrough process. Yep. And every day the owner was like twitching because they were losing 15, 20, 30 minutes of work time laying it all out. But I was like, just trust the process, man. And by the end of the week, he's like, we're a day and a half ahead of schedule, even though we're missing 30 minutes every morning. I was, yeah, everybody's on the same page. There's no question of what the next step is. The material is exactly where it needs to be. Like it just plans out the whole project. Yeah. And like for what I did with this pile of fill, it's, I have a drainage system in the front of it, then the driveway, and then two drainage systems to the other side of the driveway. But you get back straight down the driveway and even these freaking truck drivers, man, they can one shot back right to the pile, right underneath the bucket, load the truck and go. 
Yeah. And it's just something as simple as that. He doesn't have the background anything. It's just back in and go. And and, and 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 I don't know if you've noticed this or not, Rich, but I want to I'm curious to know, like, do you find like the hidden benefit of that is like these truck drivers go out of their way with you because you make their life easier from job to job? That yeah, I would say that it they, you know, there's a couple of guys that I've worked for, you know, I got in slow over winners going to work for them. So I call them and I'm, you know, up on their list of guys they'll go work for right away because of two things. They know it's going to be simple until they get a check in a couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely way easier on everybody. Then I don't have to worry about the truck driver running over any of my sticks, any of my layout stuff, any of my septic system or drainage systems that they can't run over. I know everything underneath them's hard. You know, nobody's going to get stuck. I'm not going to get a phone call if a guy's loading himself. Oh, I got the truck stuck because you're right on the driveway. It's all the old crushed blacktop and 75 other trucks have driven over. It's all hard. Yeah. And and I would almost guess that maybe not the owner of the company, but the drivers themselves, they care more about how easy you make their job than they do that you're sending a check in two days right after they do. Oh, 100%. The, the truck drivers around here, I don't know how they are anywhere else, are not exactly the smartest nor the most active people. So we always make the joke that when the window goes up, the ears get closed. Like they don't, they stop listening. They don't even, they can't yep. watch hand signals. It's like. They don't hear the horn. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. You know, I got a 28 foot driveway opening. I have a 16 foot driveway for in the back end. I make everything just as, as simple as it can be because not having to yell at them or not having to watch them run over anything they're not supposed to makes my life easier. It makes their life easier. They're in, they're out, they're gone, they come back. And yep. it's just the easiest thing for everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. So like going off of this, making it easy for people and like minimizing friction. So is most of the work you're doing, are you doing that as a subcontractor through a GC or are you getting hired by resident homeowners? Um, It's split 50-50. 50-50. So when you're working yeah. with like a homeowner, like how do you make the process so simple that they want to hand you a check? I, I I make sure to let them know that, look, while I'm working, this job is going, if you don't know what's going on, you're going to be nervous. I, I, I try to calm the nerves the best I can be like, look, I understand. Like I've, I've been there. Like if you don't know what's going on, it's going to look like a bomb went off and it's going to make you nervous. I said, but you just got to give me like, say I have an estimate for a week. I'm like, give me till day number four. And you'll start seeing everything come together and then you'll understand. And I haven't had any issues. No, I think that's key. Like that clear communication because it is yeah. for a lot of these customers. It's the first time they've had something massive done to their property that they've actually been there day in, day out. Yeah. You know, like if you're building a new house, you might stop by and take a look at it and come back the next day, but like you don't have to live there. So it's not a huge deal. But when you live on that property and you have to look at that and like, dinner's getting cooked and you're staring out the window going, Oh my God, this guy, I hired the wrong guy. Right. Like, yep. There's a mess. But if you walk them through that and explain to them up front, like, Hey, for four days, you're going to be like, what in the world? And here's why. And here's what, here's what we had to do. And this is why we have to do it on day five. This all starts going away. And by day six, you've got a perfectly leveled backed out yard and all that. It just kind of builds that, um, that trust. It builds the trust, but yeah, like you said, it calms those nerves. And I, yeah. and I don't, I don't think contractors are as good at that because we do the, you guys do the work day in and day out. Like they cut that corner of talking to that homeowner at a fourth grade level. So he's fully yeah. aware of all the steps. That's literally what it is. Like you have to assume that 95% of your customer base has no idea what the hell you're talking about. It's like yep. when you're a mechanic or something else, like you have to explain it so that a 10 year old could could grasp the concept of it. And I've noticed that works well. I mean, some people are just nervous Nellies, regardless of what you tell them. I, you know, I have one customer like that. He was always constantly nervous until the job was done. Then he was happy. But yeah. during the process, he just, he couldn't visualize what I was trying to explain to him. And I would get a phone call like every other day. Yeah. But it wasn't an issue because, you know, he paid up front, you know, the money always came in and he wasn't, yelling at me he was just nervous so you know you pick up the phone call you dedicate that 15 minute phone call to him and, and just customer service it's always number one man that's if we could 
pound the hammer on that one all day long. Like I, we talk, we preach that like the customer experience is at the top of everything because if the customer yeah. doesn't have a good experience, you don't have a business. No. And I'm too small to tell a bad customer to go fuck themselves. Yeah. And as much as I would like to, some of these guys, man, I would really just like to tell them what I think, but I'm not at that point. And you really should never do that. But some guys are big enough to where their phone is constantly ringing and they're giving away jobs that same size. Then they can do it. But when you're starting out and you're small and you know, you're only in business a year or two or three, you kind of have to suck up your pride a little bit and sit there and just, you know, explain everything like they're a toddler. And, and that's true. I mean, if, if you and I went and sat in with a, like a, a NASA physicist, he'd have to explain that shit. Like we were toddlers. Cause not a, I mean, not a word he'd said would make sense if he talked his jargon. Oh no. I tell people like, they'll, they'll find the home Depot, that white pipe that crushes real easy. They're like, Oh, why can't you use this? It's like $8. I'm like, no, I use SDR for a reason. They're like, well, what's SDR? And I show them a picture, you know, I find it on Google. I go, it's this. I said, but here's the difference. And I'll show them a couple of pictures I have where like I have the machine right on top of the pipe and it's not even ovaling. And yeah. I'll show them with the white pipe that like I can squeeze it by hand. Yep. And it's not like I'm Eddie Hall over here where I'm, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like I'm a normal sized guy and I'm squeezing this pipe by my hand. I'm like, you put this under three or four feet of material. It's eventually going to crush. Right. Yeah. And then the exact side of that, that's a great example. Cause like we work with guys. He's like, well, I tell my customers we use schedule 40 pipe. And I'm like, I bet you 9.9 out of 10 have no clue what schedule what 40 pipe is. No, they don't have a clue yeah. what it is. Like you're speaking jargon. You're not speaking. Yeah. I have, I almost always have like a short two or three foot piece of four inch SDR on my truck for whatever reason. It just, it just ends up there. And I'll use that little piece. I'll go, look, try to squeeze it. And they're like, oh, I can't move it. I'm like, stand on. Like, it's not going to move. And I'm like, that's why I use this pipe versus other pipe. And I'm like, and it's not too hard where it's brittle. I'm like, it's going to flex and give a little bit, but it's not going to collapse on you. Unless, you know, you drive a loaded dump truck over it. But these are, you know, for footing drains and roof leaders and things that aren't going to be getting driven over. Yeah. And did you ever look at them and just say, hey, this extra $400 expense today. So we don't use this pipe is going to save you eight grand in a year and a half or two years when we have to come back and redig it and replace this pipe because it's collapsed on itself and it doesn't allow any water drainage. That's part of my argument with them. I'm like, look, I said, I can, I, I tell them I will guarantee my entire job, material, labor, everything for the next two years depending on what, what it is, but for some of these drainage systems, I guarantee them for a year or two. I'm like, if we use my SDR pipe, I said, if you make me put in that white pipe from Home Depot, I will not guarantee a single thing. Yep. And they're like, why? I go, I don't trust the pipe. It's not worth my time. I don't even want to put it in. And I refuse to. And I, I tell work? them simply, like, I will not. How does that work for you when you remove the guarantee from them? Do they get on your page or is it still an argument? It's somewhat of an argument because a lot of people, like I said before, are window shopping. They're just, yeah. they're window shopping. They want the cheapest price. And I'm like, look, I'm not going to give you the cheapest price because I know it's not going to work. I'm not going to put my name on something. So I'd rather not get the job than put my name on something I know is going to fail in the next couple of years. Yeah. And I sometimes they get on my page. Sometimes yeah. they don't. I would really recommend you kind of like, just think back for the last 20 or 40 phone calls you've had with customers and go, Oh, I should have asked them this question before I drove out there and start making that list of all those questions. And then just refine it until you get the list of five, 10, 15, whatever the number is that that gives you enough information for you to even justify going out for that estimate and protect yeah. your, and protect your time. That is definitely something I, I think I have to, I have to work on. Uh, this year has been a little slow though. And I've been hearing that for a lot of guys, like a lot of the bigger guys that I know are no new jobs. There's jobs from last year. Yeah. Or if they do get a new job, it's 30 or 40% less work than they had the years prior. And they're just finishing up old jobs and starting new jobs. So this year is just a weird year or two to begin with. Yeah. But. So I think with the thing that you've got going for you though, is like a lot of the services you offer are needs, not wants. And I think the guys that offer services that are more want-based, like land clearing or things like that, like, yeah. you know, you can hold off getting your back 40 cleared out for a year or two until you're comfortable with the economy or whatever else. 
but you cannot hold off putting drainage in because water's slamming against your foundation every yeah. time it rains. Yeah, I just did a, I just did one job like that last year, middle of last year, actually right around this time last year, yeah, where the back of her house is facing the hill. So all the water was running down into the old patio, seeping underneath the patio and then through the foundation because the foundation was old. It was one of the old uh, fuel stone foundations. Mm. She had to get it repointed. She had a waterproofer come in. And then I put, I think it was 30 tons of stone and a six inch pipe and ran it out, um, ran it out and around to daylight. And she hasn't had an issue since. Yeah. And like she had puddles of water coming into the house. But we could be like in the we could be in a recession heading to a depression. And if that's your home, you're still gonna find a way to get that done because it's less expensive to add that drainage than it is to, to redo the house, replace yeah. the whole house. I mean, so I think that's where I think a lot of guys like sometimes like having those want-based services is great when times are good. But what are the need-based services that can get you through the lean times? Yeah. And I found drainage and septic is really one of the most reliable ways of you know keeping yourself busy you you and one or two other guys busy like if you're at that point i'm not i'm at a one-man show right now i mean it is what yeah. it is but it's my first full year you know i was in the union so yeah but you're right like those services no matter what the economy's like there's still yeah, a need. there's still a need for them yeah if your septic's back up into your house you need to fix that right your fields aren't draining, that needs to get fixed. If your tank's collapsing in on itself, it needs to get fixed. Nope, absolutely. I think those are I think that's I think that's something that's really important for some of the guys to be like when you look at what you offer, like those guys with those dedicated land clearing machines and all that. And like I hope your customer base are recession proof customers that you know depend on that land clearing. And it's not just for recreational use, because if it is, you're gonna have some lean years event, you know, sometime down the road. Yeah. So I want to talk about your grandpa. All right. So, so the old, the old timer starts the business in the seventies. Yeah. He came over here from Germany during, right after world war II. He grew up literally dirt floor poor. Him and my grandmother, both. They, uh, they met at a German American club. You know, he came over not speaking a lick of English. You know, he had a sponsor from one of his cousins came over that whole nine. He actually started getting into excavation by digging um, graves. And back so then, that grave. was done by hand, right? No, so he had an old backhoe. Okay. He said that it was two-wheel drive. No, it just had rops. Just roll over. It was That was it. Uh, he said there was no teeth on the bucket. Two of the shanks were pr pretty much completely gone. It had one good tooth. And that's how he got his start in digging. And then uh, I guess he was digging a grave one day and one of the bigger guys down here saw him was like, Oh, you know, I like that guy and offered him a job. He uh, made a good friendship with him. Uh, got into business, got more experience than went on his own. And when he passed, the guy had quite a few million. So the, the power of compound interest and in saving uh, that and bright investments um, using the company as the proper leverage, you know, at one point the, business had 30 some odd employees wow so they were so it wasn't always a small you know mom and pop shop at one point this was a relatively large excavation company yeah yeah they had 10 excavators and three or four labors per excavator plus operators yeah that's i mean that's that's a commitment to the community right there like you got to keep the workflow coming in because you got a lot of families dependent on you for for food on the table Oh yeah, they they did that for 15 years, give or take, until the 80s recession hit. Mm -hmm. Then they they scaled down to I think 10 guys, and then 07 hit, and then it was just me, and my father, and my grandfather from basically then on. Gotcha. Yeah, that 07 man, I remember that because I owned my business back through that, and you know you hear stories of like the gas hike prices in the 70s and what it did, or you hear stories about the the ridiculous interest rates in the 80s and how bad it was. And now, like, now that it's 07's past, it's been over 10 years, like, you look at that, like, it's on the same level as all of that. Yeah, I would say, if not worse. And, because... and it's funny, and it's funny though, Rich, because I look back at that, I go, it sucked, but it wasn't like doom and gloom, we're never going to recover. Yeah. So it made me question, like, all the reports you hear about the things from the past and how bad it was, and I'm like, 
was it that bad or is it just the way you want to remember it? Like, yeah, it did suck. Don't get me wrong. Like I ended up closing a business because of it, but you know, I didn't yeah. jump off. A, I didn't jump off a balcony because I couldn't handle it. And yeah, I mean, we got lucky because I say, I say we, but I mean, my father, my grandfather got lucky because one, my grandmother was very stingy with money, which helped immensely. And then the two years leading up to that, Oh, seven, they, uh, they landed a new builder who was more of the 1% and the 1% builder. So the jobs where you would go and figure, say the job was $50,000. Well, for them, it was a hundred. Got it. And they were writing the checks every other week. Yeah. Not a single question. I mean, everything had to be meticulous. Your work had to be up to par, but you were giving a certain clientele, a certain level of work that my father and grandfather and the, the Portuguese laborers were able to uphold. That's fantastic. And yeah. So they were able to put enough money in the bank where, you know, 07 sucked, but they had enough money to pay the mortgages enough to pay the bills. You know, they kept the lights on in the shop, a couple of small jobs here and there, you know, just, just enough to, to float it. And that's what they did. Yeah. It's important. I know. I mean, and not for the guy that started out this year by no means, but in, in hell, even him, it's important to me to like take a small percentage from everything you do and like just stick it separate, separate account. You yeah, can always my, pull it. You can always pull it out if you got a bill you got to pay. But yeah, my viewpoint on that is, I live in one of the most expensive states in Connecticut. In Connecticut, it's down here is ridiculous. Like my house is eleven hundred square feet on 0.8 acres, and my taxes are sixty five hundred dollars a year. Yeah, like it's. Like the house is nothing like it's ridiculous. I only need to pay myself a thousand dollars a week to the business. That's all I take thousand dollars a week. You know, I pay my, I think it ends up being like 1400 the, the company pays. Give me a thousand dollars. Your company can pay for everything else. Your fuel for your truck is a write off your repairs on your truck. You can go through the business. You don't need to pay yourself a hundred thousand a year to get a hundred thousand dollars worth of benefits. Right. Yeah, and then, that's what a lot of guys I don't think understand. You pay yourself sixty grand a year, well, you haven't paid for fuel, you haven't paid for clothes, you haven't paid for electricity at your house because your home office, you haven't paid for internet because home office, and next thing you know, you're you're really only paying your mortgage. Yeah, and and for those guys out like yourself, are you an LLC or an S corp? Um, that's a good question because, like I said, the the company is the same from the '70s. So I think we're an S corp. Okay, so. And some guys don't understand this out there, but like an LLC is basically an extension of yourself. So whatever profits are in that business, whatever expenses are in that business, they they cancel each other out and whatever's left, you get you get like a K-1 schedule that goes and then you file your personal taxes with that K-1 schedule from the LLC. Yeah. So like if you made $150,000 in profit, that $150,000 is considered income to you. Yeah. Right. With an S corp, you can pay yourself what they call a reasonable wage. So you can pay yourself that thousand dollars a week, the $1,400 a week, 60, $63,000 a year. And then every quarter or once a year, you can write yourself a dividend from the company. And that dividend yeah. only pays income taxes, not all the other back end taxes. So you can actually minimize your taxes on your money by moving yep. to an S corp when you reach a certain level with your business. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much all the financial advice that I was given. That's what everybody told me. They're like, you know, register the, the all your vehicles, personal vehicles, everything that you need registered on the company. Have the company pay for ninety percent of everything you need because the company gets paid. You know, gets a write off for it. It's yep. it's and then you know it ends up costing you less money for the same stuff. I'm not saying go out and buy yourself that brand new you know fully loaded pickup for a hundred grand that they're going out, but you know. Yeah. So, I mean, like for me, like the, the, the salary I took from my business last year and the owner compensation slash benefits that I received, like the cell phone or the truck, all those things that, you know, you'd have to pay out of your pocket if you didn't own the business. Yep. They were almost equal last year. Yeah. And I, that's a lot of, that's something that a lot of guys, the younger guys don't really fully grasp. Like, this pickup, I had to do, you know, some front end work, the brakes, you know, transmission. I, I was probably five or six grand in repairs in the last year. Put it all through the business instead of taking it out of my pocket, because instead of paying myself, getting taxed on that and then paying for it, I got the same thing. Mine is paying all those taxes on. 
on everything. Yeah. No, it's you're absolutely right. I mean, and if anyone out there listening to this is like kind of confused or lost and all that, go talk to I would recommend go talking to two different people. One, go find a good accountant. He's gonna be <laughs> straight lined. Like you have to do this to do this to do this. And then go get a mentor that owns a business so that he can show you what the accountant really meant when he said this, because he can't give you that advice. Out, 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 out. Yeah. You, you want the, that gray area. Yeah. Like, I, like when it comes like the same thing with a lawyer, like I know what the laws are. I want you to tell me what you can do about it. in that, right. that little, that little in between area. Like yep. I, I, there's some accountants out there that are good for that. Um, mine is pretty good. I would say about, helping me skirt where I can and, you know, tells me what I have to do and gives me things that he goes, I don't necessarily recommend it, but what you can do is X, Y, Z. I'm like, okay. So what you're telling me is this is the gray area where you can't legally, you know, tell me to do it. But if I did do it, you could find a way to make it all work. Yeah. Are you setting money aside yet for your retirement? Are you still investing all of it back into the business? Um, Depends on the year. Like when I was part-time, I was setting some aside into a uh, retirement. I'm actually looking uh trying to grow the business a little bit more so I can start buying property Yep. as my retirement. You know, start well, buying. Yep. And I will say as a business owner that I find investing in myself and my business is a much larger priority than it is into a retirement account. Agreed. 100%. Like the value of Skid Steer Nation today, and we started it in 2020. I couldn't have invested that much money in three years. It's just, just from, so, so say, you know, say I land this job that I just put a bid on. It's, it's an apartment complex. Like it's a, a fairly large job. I will be buying new equipment for that job because that job will afford me. Yeah. That new equipment, even if it devalues 50% in the next four years, there's no way in hell I would be able to invest a hundred something thousand dollars. Right. No way in hell. That's 25 grand a year. There's no way I could swing 25 grand a year in investment. And just with that one, say, you know, 290, that machine is going to be worth well over $100,000 in four years. Yeah. And I, and, and I think and I, to go off of this, I think one of the things that you guys in, in the business and the industry, we don't look at selling the business at a certain point in life. Like there's a value to that, right? But you have yeah. to have that business structured properly system like people are buying a system that generates money yep. they're not buying a name yeah so i always say like get your ducks in a row in the back end like on the operation side and like have sop standard operating procedures on from answering the phone to submitting estimates to anything and everything so that when you do want to exit the business and somebody wants to buy it they look at it and say oh this is turnkey just like a franchise yep i am uh Trying to find myself a nice lady to give me a couple sons so I don't have to sell the business. <laughs> so I can, you know, just, you know, let it stay in the in the family. Um, you know, my father owns a piece of property down uh, around by me that's, you know, worth a pretty penny now because it's commercially zoned for heavy equipment in a town city that's trying to get rid of that. Yeah. So that value is only going up. So when him and my mother pass, it's going to be going to me and my sister. Now, me and my sister will be getting a, a large inheritance uh, of property through that. And I would like to be able to replicate that for my own retirement because they have it rented out and my father could retire tomorrow and make just as money, much money monthly from that rent as he does work in, in the union. Yeah. And that's um, just one piece of property. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on this, but I mean, over the last year and a half, I've lost both my parents. And so I've had to learn a lot about estates and management and all that. So the only thing I would ask you, Rich, is like, go talk to your parents. <laughs> Do they have a trust? Is like, every, like are the assets in a trust? So that's are what I brought up to them. Executors of the trust. In so the they, have it all in a, they have it in a will. And yeah. I have tried to talk to them about putting it into a, a trust. This way, when that time does come, me and my sister don't get fucked by the government. Well, uh, that's one thing. But here's the other thing. Like, there's probably a high chance that one or both of your parents was going to need long-term care as they get older. 
Oh yeah. So if those assets are in a trust for five years or longer, they're not assets of your parents and the state and the nursing home and nobody can go after them for payment for their long-term care. Yeah. Five years or less, they can go after it. So like for me, like when we had to put my mom in long-term care and all that, like their trust in the house was good, but the trust in the investments and all that was not. So like we had to get creative and like, how to protect her assets so yeah. that, that so that we could maximize them. And, and like I wasn't trying to like hide them so that we could get it for myself. I was like, if she needs care for five years and we got to pay this much out of pocket, like we've got to make sure we got the money that, for it. That we got the money for it, you know, where the trust to me was just a great is is the one thing that I wish I would have knew when I was younger. So I could guide and go work my parents and be like, hey, let's go meet with somebody and learn the value of a trust. Yeah. Just for that reason. Yeah, I was uh I was watching a couple things on YouTube the other day about that for some reason it just came up in my suggested things and I was like, oh, you know, that's not a half bad idea. Instead of, you know, giving it down, I saw on the, the financial back end, you know, it wasn't there's less taxes, less everything you gotta pay on it. And it just instead of saying here's a piece of property worth one point five million, oh, and here's the taxes that come along with it, it it factors in differently. I you know, like you said, let's not go too far in the weeds there because I'm not hundred percent on that. Right. And the one word that we can talk about that most people are going to recognize it, it removes probate court. Yes. That's what it, that's what I was thinking of that. It did. You know, cause there's no question of where the assets go or where they belong to or who's in charge of them. It just removes yeah. all. So, all right. No, enough of the, of the deep, boring financial stuff, man. Yeah. Nobody likes that stuff. All right. So, so real quick, back to your grandpa. You were yeah. a kid, you were a kid running around job sites. You would pester him and get in his way. How would he handle that? So one of his famous things to do. Now this guy was <laughs> one of the actual good operators. <laughs> he would stick the tooth of the bucket in my back pocket sometimes and rip my pocket off or push me out of the way with the bucket of the machine. Now it didn't matter if it was a mini excavator or a, you know, 30 ton excavator. Didn't matter. You could get that tooth in your back pocket and either the pocket was going off or you're getting pushed out of the way. He would uh, water in the bucket. Sometimes if I was being a real little shithead, you know, that would end up on me. Even if I was, you know, way out of reach, he would figure out a way to, you know, swing it and spray the water on me. Yeah, no, that, that guy had a lot of creative ways to get That's me to. That's hilarious. I think the best thing about it is I'm sure everybody back then, including your parents thought it was funny. And like, you're like, what, what just happened to me? And then, you know, today's society, somebody takes a picture of that in a cell phone and you're going to DCFS and getting removed yeah. from the house for child abuse. And and yet that's the stuff that builds our character. But, uh, yeah, I'm sure anybody who listens that can back me up on that, you know, grandpa or the old timers, they were not nice to us. Yeah, There was no such thing as taking care of our feelings. And the one thing I learned is the harder they were on you, the more they actually like you. Yeah. So the more shit you got during the day from that old timer sitting in the machine, the more he yelled at you, the better you were. Yep. And and if you want to like, you could actually relate that to like when we were young, we weren't nice to the girls we liked. Oh, you know, it's the same. I'm philosophy. still not nice like, to the girls we, I like. We picked on the ones that we liked the most. You know. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it just you're right. Like you know, my dad didn't bail me out of everything. Like he's like, figure it the fuck out. Yeah, my my father will bail me out when he knows I know what I'm doing, but I'm just overwhelmed. Like if I'm on a job and he knows I know what I'm doing, he'll come and bail me out. Right. You know, by by giving me an extra hand because man, sometimes I do get myself into some situations I should not begin myself into. A, I'm talking more as like a younger child. Like he he made me learn problem solving skills. Oh yeah, my father sit me down. He goes, ah, figure it out. Yeah. First thing I got my CDL, right? I oh no, I didn't even have my full CDL. I had just my learner permit at 18. He made me take our six wheeler with a 25 ton tag and a paver. And with the paver, it was just a hair wider than the trailer, so you couldn't see the end of the trailer when you're backing up. He goes, bring it to this job. By the way, you're gonna have to turn here and then back down the road. I'm like, oh, okay, no problem. Figuring there's a couple houses. It was a mile and a half on a barely two lane with cars parked on each side. And it was Figure it the fuck out and uh, don't hit anything. Yeah, I'll, I'll see. I see you when you're there. That's hilarious. 
But and again, man, those are the things that, that you don't forget. No, if you would have drove that truck for you and told you you're not ready for that, you'd never would remember that day. Nope. That and he uh you know, we had a nice Kenworth T eight hundred triaxle with an eight speed, gorgeous truck, like brand new. He goes, Take the truck and don't bring it back to you know how to shift it. He didn't come <laughs> with me. He goes, You've driven with me enough. You know, I did. I drove with him enough moving equipment. He goes, You know how to do it, you know what it's supposed to sound like. Go take the truck around the block and don't bring it back until you know how to shift it. That's Spent like five hours in the truck. That's fantastic. <laughs> yep. And he goes, make sure you take a left out of the shop and take the left around the block instead of taking a right because the left was all uphill with a bunch of stops oh. uphill. So he goes, take a left. He goes, if you take a right, I'm going to call you and you bring that truck back and we're going to do this again tomorrow. <laughs> and yeah. So uh, needless to say, now I know how to start on a, steep ass hill with a full load and truck doesn't roll back you know i could put a trailer pretty much anywhere but i never would have gotten there if i hadn't been told go do this and figure it the fuck out yeah i mean i remember my dad i told him i wanted like he he, he was big and we were big into fishing growing up and he he used those bait casters with the open reel yep and i said i want to learn how to use that and i think i was like 12 years old so he went in the garage and got me a bait caster from the 1950s that used to belong to my grandpa and he put it on a rod and he gave it to me with a sinker on it. And we're in the backyard. And he's like, if you can learn to cast this, you can cast any bait caster out there. And it took me like three weeks until I stopped getting those rat's nest in the line. And I hated it. My like, dad, I want one of the new ones. They're easier to use. He's like, I know they're easier to use, but you figure out how to do self-tension with your thumb and all that. And then these are going to be a walk in the park. for. Yeah. Um, like I said, I might've learned how to shift on that Kenworth, but I got stuck in the 85 Mac more often than I would like to admit. <laughs> and that 85 Mac had 200, uh, the Mac 237, I think it was, with the five speed with the aux. So it wasn't a, like, it wasn't a, a two stick, but you had to start out in low and the aux in first and then get that aux to your, uh, your primary driver, I forget what the name of it was. And then you could start shifting instead of just the Kenworth where, you know, you put it in a low hole and then, you know, it's all one nice smooth thing. Now, go take that. Learn how to downshift and upshift when you got a load on, when you're going up and down hills, you don't have the power to bail you out. Because that Kenworth, I could just stick it in fourth gear and just pull any hill I wanted to. Yeah. It didn't matter. It, it took no brains to drive that truck. But that Mac, it took brains for pretty much everything except for dumping. That truck would dump on stupid angles. So that was the only uh, major benefit over the Kenworth. Gotcha. Gotcha. Oh, man, Rich, I want to be conservative of your time. We've been talking for a little over an hour now, and I, 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 I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you i mean i love when people are vulnerable enough to talk about their failures and the things they learn the most from and they don't just want to show that it's all rainbows and unicorns and i and i really want to thank you for for doing that and like sharing that with these guys like you know we're all on the same path we're, you know we're all trying to grow our business we're all trying to be better than we were yesterday and the only yeah. way to do that the only way to do that is to like get some reinforcement from time to time from other guys going hey Shit happens. You have yeah. two choices. Fold in the cards and call it a day or learn from it and be better tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, what, what am I, what can you learn when things are going right? You don't learn anything. Nothing. You learn from all your mess ups. I, you know, none of my successes have taught me nearly as much as any of my failures. And I will speak more about my failures because who really gives a shit about your successes anyway? Right. Half the people you talk to, they don't care that you're doing good. They just want to hear the bad shit. So you just talk about the bad shit because you know what? This is all the shit I learned from. This is who made me who I am, how this got me to where I am. Yeah, but be, and, I, I, you know, I will I will warn you, be careful of that because do you know why most people want to hear the bad shit? They don't give a shit about you. Because they want to make sure that you're dragged down to their level because they don't have the the nuts to go out and do what you're doing and start a business and try to better yourself. Oh, yeah. And for me, I I've always never cared what other people thought. So for me, it's easy to share, you know, you know, I made a fuck up here. I messed up. And that's always been easy for me because I know on the other side of that coin, it's nice and shiny. Yeah. So like I know things that I'm doing good. Yeah. So in my company, we actually celebrate the failures. It's like not a bad my, idea. No, when my, when my team members fail, we actually celebrate it. And then we turn it into like a training slash learning moment. And then we look at why they failed. Like, was it something that I didn't provide them in the beginning? Was it, was the, was the steps of how to do the job not properly defined? 
Did they just try it a different way? Like, and then we can go through and we either A, refine our process or B, we make them a better person. And very rarely C, you just say you're not a good fit. I should have never hired you. Yeah. Because you know what? The nine out of 10 times with a mistake, there's usually something simple behind it. Yeah. Something very simple that, you know, either somebody really just plainly didn't know or didn't have the tools to recognize. And that's, that's really it. Hundred percent, and and if you take extreme ownership as the owner of your company, and if they didn't have the tools or they didn't know exactly what to happen, if you take extreme ownership and say, "Wow, I failed you. I should have given you better clarity, or I should have given you a better tool," your your culture and your team will rally around you during the worst of times and run with you through the best of times. Yep, that between that and you know maybe one or two coffees a week. You'll keep guys forever. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, we talk about this quite a bit, but like there's a lot of studies out there that say when you give somebody a financial raise, you see an increase in performance for seven to 14 days. And, and then, it beca- it. then it becomes the new norm. So they go right back to the way they work before. Yep. So that's the financial, you know, as long as you pay your guys a, a reasonable wage, and then, like you said, extreme ownership. And then, you know, every now and then buy them lunch or buy a coffee or something. It goes way farther than you would think. Yeah. And just make them feel like they have a voice within the company and that make sure that like they feel like your mission can become theirs. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. That's huge, man. And and I'll be honest with you, Rich. I think that's an amazing stopping point. Like that was a hit home topic. And and I don't, you know, I don't I don't want to water it down with some some bullshit rambling. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. So I hear you. I got to finish making this driveway so people can come and go before I get yelled at by the town anyway. Awesome, man. Well, thanks again for, for taking time out of your day. And, um, I, I know you're sitting in the truck at a job site, so I really appreciate you fitting us into your schedule, sharing your journey, sure. your story, your family with all of us and our listeners. And, um, I wish nothing but the best of luck to you. And, uh, I hope that you hit all the goals that you have for yourself over the next one, five, 10 and 50 years. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Yep. Take care.